Good morning, church. If you'd please open to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is going to be, if you see the Psalms, go left. And you will then see Job and then Esther and then Nehemiah. As Kerr mentioned, uh, today we're beginning a series where uh, I think the Lord has prepared us for this series, but this series has been stirring in my heart for the the vast portion of this year as we look to build a healthy spirituality, one individually in our own walks with the Lord, but also collectively as a church, as a community community together as the body of Christ, what does it mean for us to build healthy spirituality? There, there are two aspects to it. One, there's a personal aspect, but there's the corporate aspect that we need to first learn. And they, I think they both help each other. When we are not feeling up to snuff spiritually, that's usually when we want to avoid gathering as the church and gathering in the context that God's given us as means of grace to help us grow. We tend to avoid those things rather than go to them because going to them helps us grow. It helps us build a healthy spirituality. Um, but we, we are to also be looking for building one another, building into one another. And I think Nehemiah's experience in rebuilding the walls around uh, Jerusalem will help us understand what God wants for us in in how we are building together as a church. And this, we'll just look at the first three verses of chapter 1 this morning to really set up this series, but also set up the study uh, through this book. So if you would, look at Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakalali, easy for me to say, Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived, in the, survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Father, would you help uh, help us locate our own experience uh, with your presence, with Nehemiah's experience. Help us understand that what happened in the Old Testament is uh, in many ways uh, an understanding of how we experience life in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. So Lord... Uh, By your Holy Spirit's power, give us illumination. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God's people have a habit of settling for what we see rather than what we know and believe about God. And when we do that, we settle for something less than God's intention for us. C.S. Lewis, I believe this is in uh, Mere Christianity. He says this about us as God's people. Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted 
creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition with infinite, when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, a lot of times we think our cravings for whatever we see, whatever is not God's blessing in our lives, uh, our struggle is not with sin. Our struggle is with our sight, not seeing the beauty that God is and going after him. So this for us is, is kind of twofold. I bring that quote up for us to be able to see that we, we may be settling in our lives for a life and a, an experience in our Christian life that is not God's intention for us. He, he's offering something infinite, but we are settling maybe for what we see. Uh, my pastoral burden for us, and particularly for uh, this next season as we study Nehemiah, is that we have settled into, I have a burden that we have settled into a Christian life that lacks gospel freedom and lacks gospel power that Jesus died and rose to give us. Now I say that because I recognize in my own life how I have lacked gospel freedom and gospel power. And I, too, am tempted to settle for something that's just regular, that becomes a status quo in in life, in the Christian life, where we, we start to pray and not expect God to answer the prayers. We all know that experience. We have learned a less powerful and less free Christian walk that actually keeps spiritual strongholds and barriers in place rather than overcome them. We're then deceived into thinking that there's just nothing more for us. God just seems to bless everybody else. He doesn't bless us. And our spiritual lives can become very dormant and plain, very beige. But church, please hear this. God has more for us. He has more for us to experience of himself. This book in the Bible reminds us that God has more for his people's experience in his presence. There's an overarching concept that carries throughout the Nehemiah's journey in rebuilding Jerusalem. It's this, God's presence is to be experienced by his people. God's presence is to be experienced by his people. The first half of the book are practical steps of restoring that presence. And the second half are spiritual steps in in experiencing God's presence together. And the story opens with a report of ruins. God's people are not experiencing the fullness. They're not experiencing the fullness of his presence due to the ruin around them. That's how many of us live. But Nehemiah's heart is for God's people to experience God's presence in God's way. And we will see Nehemiah, his tireless resolve to restore God's presence in the hearts of his people. It's not about the walls. The walls are something practical in order to get to something spiritual. And there are many times in, in, in our, our, our daily lives, in our quest to grow in godliness with reading the Bible and personal worship and prayer and meditation and evangelism, those, those gifts of God that are disciplines that we walk out, they are practical steps that help us experience the presence of God all over the place in our lives. 
So the, it's not about the walls, per se. It's about the heart. And, and God wants to, Nehemiah's heart, is let's get the practical things together in order to touch the heart. And Jesus is doing the same thing right now for every single one of us. He's praying for us right now to experience a heart that loves and experiences God's presence more than anything. The name Nehemiah means Yahweh comforts. And that's what Yah- uh, God is bringing this Nehemiah to, uh, to, the, to Jerusalem as a comfort, as God comforting his people. And this clues us into the overarching, God's overarching intention. He wants to comfort his people in a restored experience of his presence. So I ask you, what anxieties are you battling? What frustrations, what exhaustions are you battling? Because those are indicative of the ruins that we live with. Maybe there's walls that are just broken down. Maybe there's gates that are still have the remnants of fire and you, you don't know what to do. God's heart for us is he wants us to be comforted so our experience in his presence is unhindered. That's what he wants for us. And it happens first in God's city. In our, our study of Revelation, we saw that uh, a city usually meant, it represented man's rebellion. And man's desire to build, going all the way to Babel, that city. Let's build a tower and make a name for ourselves and we'll be God. And God uh, can, can just go away. Uh, and that city is still being felt today. Cities, uh, even in our country and, and in, in the Western world, cities are, uh, are the centers of secularism. And secularism is about uh, a, a humanism. Man is the ultimate destiny for life. And so we have to build ourselves in those skyscrapers, our man's attempt to make a name for himself and ignore God. That those cities have been all over in every generation, no matter how tall the buildings are. But God wanted a different city. He wanted his city. And he put the intention in David's heart. David wanted to build a place for God. He wanted to build God a city, but also a temple, a place for God to dwell on the earth. And God put it in David's heart. But listen, God's intention for David was to build a city that was opposite the other cities. Rather than being a city built from the ground up, Jerusalem was to be a city built from heaven down. It was to be a city that God dwelled in. And he dwelt with his people. It was, the, it was the place of man's humility, not man's pride. The place of man's humility under the righteous, loving name of God. And in the Psalms, we hear Zion, the name Zion thrown there. It's God's holy city. And in Revelation, we saw a new city, God's city coming down out of heaven to be on the earth. This has been the mission of God's presence all along. Jesus was to, uh, Jesus, Jerusalem was to be a place for the world to experience God's loving presence. And the, and the people of the world were to be able to look at a people who were experiencing his presence. It was the place that God's presence dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and then in the, in the temple when it was completed. And the nations, all the nations looked to Jerusalem 
to see a people that worshipped a God and their experience of that worship was different because there were a myriad of, of civilizations who had false gods. And when they had the experience with those false gods, every, the world could see uh, in the experience with Baal, it's just fear. You gave a sacrifice to Baal and you had no security whatsoever, so you're left in your fear. But Jerusalem was to be the place that the, all the world could see a people that weren't fearful, that were peaceful. Jerusalem was to be the place the world could see God's people experiencing his presence. They were to see a joyful people. They were to see a people flourishing in God's blessing. They were to see a peaceful people free from fear. They were to see a comforted people, a people satisfied with God. That's what the world was looking for. But God wanted his people to experience all of those things. Not a few of them, not sporadically here and there, but in our own minds, uh, in our own experience of the Christian life, we can easily slip into, well, I just have, I have uh, periods of joy, but mostly I'm just sad all the time. Or I have, I have moments of peace, but fears just creep in all the more. I, I'm mostly satisfied with God. God wants more for us to live under his rule and his reign over our lives. But now this city, Jerusalem, is in ruins. Their fellowship with God uh, was, was not being experienced because of their sin. Nehemiah's concern is the restoration of the fellowship of God's people in his presence. And that's why he's asking for a report. Nehemiah didn't know that city beforehand. Nehemiah, we, we learn at the end of this chapter, he's the cupbearer to the king. Meaning he is, he is by the king. He's in Susa, which is the winter uh, uh, fortress of the king of Persia. And so he is, but the cupbearer was the one that tasted everything, making sure that the king wasn't killed. But he was also more that he was a trusted advisor. He listened, uh, Artaxerxes listened to Nehemiah. So that's his role there, but he's probably middle-aged. And now uh, Nebuchadnezzar has ransacked Jerusalem and it's been left there. Nehemiah is probably born in captivity, but yet he has a heart for God's people and the experience of God's people because I believe Nehemiah ached for himself to experience those things. And so do we have, do we resemble that type of ache, that type of, God, I want to experience you so deeply, so freeingly, so powerfully that we won't let anything get in the way, but we let things get in the way. The report that Nehemiah gets is that the walls are broken. When Nehemiah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, rather, he, his army came around 587 BC and destroyed, the, he, he raised everything, raised as in leveled the temple, the walls, everything, crushed them, set everything on fire. Now, this was God's city. This was the place that everybody could see. That's how God, God's people experience his presence. But rather than seeing a joyful and peaceful people, they saw everything that resembled them. There was no difference. They saw the same fear, the same superstitions, the same, oh, that God didn't answer, so I'm going to turn to this God. And God's people over and over and over again, when they thought that God was taking too long, they went to something else that they saw 
rather than what they knew God to be. It was prophesied that it would happen. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses told them this would happen. He said, hey, here's what's going to happen. If you act corruptly when you're going into the land and you make a carved image in the form of anything, doing what's evil in God's sight so as to provoke him to anger, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. Now, what's part of that uh, prophecy is restoration. When you recognize that you've been a jerk to God and you repent, he'll be right there with you because he's gracious and he's loving towards you. And you don't have to, you don't have to have extra sacrifices. You don't have to do extra things because he has a covenant relationship with you. He sets his love on you. Not because you're big and powerful and smart. It's just the opposite because you're wandering around sucking your thumb going, what do we do? God says, I got you. I got you. And he, he holds us. But here's what the people did. They looked around in comparison with all the other lands, uh, the other civilizations and their gods. And they, they interpreted that their gods blessed them in a unique way. Well, they seem blessed. They prayed to Baal and they got rain. We're praying to God. We have no rain. I'll, I'll wait a little long. I'll wait a little more for God. And so that, but when God doesn't show up, all right, let's go to Baal. And so they tried to do this dual thing. Let's serve God and serve Baal. We, just, we, we can compartmentalize and make sure everything is all right. But don't we do that? <laughs> we try to compartmentalize. We try to convince ourselves that what we're doing is okay and somehow God's going to bless it. But here, God's people are looking around in comparison rather than looking up to the incomparable blessing and exaltation that God is on his throne. See, that's, we, we look around rather than looking up. And Jeremiah, when Jeremiah prophesied, hey, uh, God's judgment's coming. Y'all better stop doing this. Isaiah is prophesying the same thing. Isaiah is prophesying to, the, uh, uh, to Israel before Nebuchadnezzar comes. Uh, Jeremiah is the time of Nebuchadnezzar coming. And Ezekiel is prophesying after when he's in exile saying, God, everything's in ruins. What happens? And Ezekiel sees a vision of God that resembles what John saw in Revelation of God coming down with a new city, a new temple, new everything. Because he's good and he's loving toward his people. But Jeremiah speaks for God. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God looked at his people and he was patient with them for hundreds of years. He was patient with them. Saying, stop looking to other gods. Stop looking to other means for peace and joy. They're they're secondary, but don't settle for those things. And he called prophet after prophet after prophet, calling to his people, stop, forsake those things and trust God. But they have forsaken God, who is the fountain of living waters and go hew out cisterns that can hold no water. Uh, We find this in our own experience, I believe, when we go after idols. Now, we might not be going after a particular idol that is a shape and a form that we're bowing down to uh, and paying homage to. But we, and this is where where we have to investigate how we go after idols in our lives. The biggest question is, where are we making the biggest sacrifices? Sacrifices with our money and our time. 
Where do we make the biggest sacrifices? And what we'll find is that in three general categories they show up. We desire significance. And so we give time and money to things that think that, that will give a return of significance in our lives, importance, fame, popularity. Or we will just look for comfort. We'll put our time and money into comfort. What makes life easy for me? How do I just get people around me to leave me alone so life can be easy? We give time and money to that. Or we will significance, comfort, and control. We'll give time and money to control. We'll give we'll, the time of our thoughts. We'll give money over to what will give me control in this situation. How can I control people? How can I control the situation to where it brings some type of, some measure of joy and peace to me? But when we go after idols, we actually create false experiences of security, false experiences of peace. And we think things are giving us peace when they're actually stirring up our fears. Because we have to go back over and over again to give the time and the money toward what we think will give us peace. But when our fears are stirred, we make sacrifices. And we build our own walls as a result. And we have false securities that we trust in. Self-protection. Self-promotion. Self-reliance. I got it. Don't need anybody's help. It's me. Self-assurance. I need to feel accepted, and so I'm going to try to figure out how to feel accepted. If it's from a particular person or a thing, I'm going, to, I'm going to crave that acceptance. But look, these are false securities, and we think, we build walls for self-protection. They're not bringing us any peace, are they? They're doing just the opposite. They're stirring up our fears, and strongholds remain. Self-promotion. We think if we just get a little higher or something over that person uh, and, and we dream about vindication and vengeance and, and winning arguments, they don't bring peace, do they? They keep us up at night the same exact way. Every time we put our hand on the wheel and our own self-reliance, we just <laughs> turn straight into the ditch. Well, how does God respond to us? Now, his people, Jerusalem, had put up these false securities. They had a wall there, a physical wall, but they had a spiritual wall that was keeping their experience with God. It was, it was preventing them from enjoying God's experience, uh, God's loving presence. So they built their own spiritual walls. So God says, here's what I'm going to do. In order to get your attention, I'm going to come in and I'm going to destroy the walls. God will break down our false securities in order to rebuild us in his presence. Hosea prophesied that. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What is behind Hosea's words? When we get into modes of our false security and we settle in, God will rattle our cages. God will come and he will actually come against us in his grace and in his mercy. He will come against our attempts to provide these walls for our own peace and security because he knows that we're going after the wrong one. We're experiencing the wrong joy. We're experiencing the wrong peace, something that will never last. And he wants his joy and his peace to last in our lives. 
And it doesn't have to be something that we feel like we have to chase around like God's hiding behind a corner. He's not hiding. He wants us to experience the full joy and the full measure of his presence. So he will, he'll crush our walls. And this makes us crazy. Because just when we think we figured life out, God comes in and he says, nope, that's a false security. Got to break it down. Now, how does he do that? He will do that in ways that we feel like uh, calamity happens around us. Whether it's a, a, a broken relationship or a broken car, it's just calamity starts to happen. And all of a sudden we feel like, all right, I don't have this peace. I don't have the joy. We get edgy. We get weird. God, you're doing this. You must be doing this. But, but, but rather than pursue him, what do we do? We turn away. All right, God, I'm just, all right. Maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe I haven't read my Bible enough. We start to put this onus on ourselves as if God is just looking for us to do more. But it also requires us in that moment to be very honest, to be very honest with ourselves in what God's doing and vulnerable with the people that God's called us to walk with. Now, what I know is this. A lot of us have been in church for a long time. And you've been in church a long time. You probably have a significant list of people who have betrayed you. People who you thought, I was vulnerable with that person. And God, how in the world, where were you in that? So what happens is based on our experience, we throw up another wall to God. Before other people, like I'm not going to invest like I did before. Because it was, it was too broken. It was too hard. It was too... All right, if, if we happen to be there, that's where my pastoral burden shows up. Because we are not experiencing God's joy the way he wants us to experience it. We can't have this, I love God, I hate people. I love God, I'm not going to hang around you. Because I know your type. That's that syncretism. We can't do, God, we are not experiencing the fullness, the oneness that Jesus prayed that we would have as disciples. He prayed that we, they may be one as we are one. And listen, that our joy, him to the son to the father, that our joy would be made complete. There's a completeness of joy that we feel like we're protecting ourselves in life but we're actually preventing ourselves from experiencing the fullness of God's presence and his joy. God yearns over the spirit that he made to dwell in us, James says, and idolatry prevents us from enjoying fellowship. God will win us back to himself. He will. I'm always saying, God, can I just learn this lesson finally? So I just don't have to go to school again in this area. Please. I'm listening. Please. (laughs) How deep do you need to go, Lord? How this hurts. How deep do you need to go? God will win us back. And he will usually win us back in ways that we wouldn't choose. Maybe not even recognize how it's happening. And sometimes that looks like a wound 
that needs to be healed. Now, God is superintending. There are wounds that we have, uh, maybe in our church experience, like I mentioned, but there are wounds that come from uh, our childhood or, or into adulthood. It's the things that still stick with you that the devil seems to have just at the ready to remind us uh, of uh, that we're not significant, that it'll never be comfortable, that we'll never have the control. I mean, there's, and, and so we're still trying to go after those things, but there, there are wounds that we have to be honest with as the people of God. Not to worship. There's a, we don't worship the wounds. And that's the people we usually try to avoid. So it's the ones who are, are self-pity all the time. It's like, enough already. Please leave me alone. No, we don't worship wounds. But we also don't think that just because we're ignoring them, that they aren't having any effect on our joy in God's presence. We, get, we settle into ignoring past. We settle into ignoring what somebody does. We, we can write people off in a moment. I'm just going to write you off. I don't have to be around you. That's fine. And we protect ourselves. That's the great trouble and shame. That God's people were experiencing this remnant that had survived the exile. This exile was a 70-year period that God said, um, it's because of the people's disobedience. God said, you're, not, you're faithless, so you need to go. I need to scatter you, grab a hold of your hearts, so when you come back, there will be a full experience. There is great trouble and great shame that's being described to Nehemiah. The broken walls that still persisted in the report that Nehemiah heard meant that fellowship with God was still inferior from God's intention for his people. And the experience of fellowship and somehow was fractured, possibly. They didn't have the security of God's wall so they could grow in their fellowship with God in his presence. Practically broken walls look like you can't, you don't have the safety to sleep. But you also don't have the commerce that would come with a secure city. So there were practical measures that God's people were not experiencing life in a whole lot of ways. Now, they had, they had the altar that was built and the temple, but they even left the temple for 20 years. They just left it. They hit a little opposition and resistance. They left that. That's in Ezra. We learned that. And then... Uh, a couple prophets need to show up and say, enough of this, all this waiting for, you need to, you need to do what God's called you to do. They were, <clears throat> in many ways, the God, people of God were lulled in mediocrity. There was work to rebuild the temple and surrounding the wall under Ezra's leadership, and it was forcefully stopped, we read in Ezra chapter 4. Then the temple sits unrestored, the walls sat unrestored longer. And when we encounter opposition and resistance, that force and that power, we can get lulled into mediocrity that prevents our full experience with God in his presence. And we, we don't know how to fight spiritually. We, we, we give in, I think, a little too much. We give up, we give in, and we continue because we, we then travel the path of least resistance. I just don't want to fight. And so I'm just going to go for a pattern of... Wherever the least resistance is. But the return remnant, though they were getting back on track building the temple, they were ignoring the walls. 
And we think that ignoring will be non-consequential. It won't, it won't really matter. But we're wrong. We're wrong. We let strongholds and spiritual barriers persist in our minds and in our hearts. And we settle for patterns and habits that are sinful. And we reason away why God somehow is okay with what we're doing. We say the same things in life about God that reveal maybe we're really not growing. Do we have a fresh awareness of his presence? Do we have a fresh awareness in our growth? Have we seen something fresh from God? Or is it the same things over and over and over again? That could mean we have spiritual strongholds that God wants to break down and break through. Our prayers end up being the same. Are we praying the same things over and over and over and over again? You know why I think... Personally, I think why that happens, I know from my own, uh, if I'm just saying the same prayers over and over again, I don't have a clear understanding of the power of God to meet that. So my, my, I settle in to the same prayer, even if there's salvation for a loved one. Save him, God. 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 Save him. I, that's not experiencing a power that God wants in his presence to, to see his greatness. And we see him saving people all over the scriptures and rescuing them. And then we're calling God, God, do the same thing like you did here and like you did here. And all of a sudden we're interacting with the word of God and there's something fresh in our prayers. Or it could be that we just don't think he's going to answer. I'm just going to offer it up. Maybe he's paying attention today. He has more for us. Our spiritual lives can get stagnant when we settle in for the status quo. And when we do that, I think we give the enemy access in our lives because uh, with our shame, we, we, he can shame us. See, you're not growing. See, you'll never overcome that sin. See, and so the, in the great trouble and great shame, there's a comfort with shame. We don't know how to live without shame because it's become... Uh, an identity. It's become even weirdly a false security in our lives. Well, this is just who I am, and that's just, I'm never going to be anything else. See, the people in Nehemiah's experience, what he's, what he's asking about, they were living under man's indictment and judgment of them. When they were rebuilding, the force and the opposition came, and they let some people who said, no, 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 you can't do that, And they got somebody in authority to tell them they couldn't do it. And they went, okay, can't do it. See, they were living under man's indictment and judgment rather than under God's decree and his authority. And that's, oh, too often that's where we live. We are living under the stronghold of somebody else's thought toward us, somebody else's word over us, somebody else's judgment of us, rather than understanding God's decree of who we are in Christ. Oh, and how we need freedom. That's when we, when we live under man's indictment, we are held down 
by shame. And we battle shame all the time. We listen to another indictment, somebody of our past, or maybe the devil himself, and we get shackled by the fear. We get used to operating in shame rather than the freedom that Christ won for us. Look, 2 Corinthians 10 helps us. There's more. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Do you believe that, church? Because I read that and I struggle. Do I, do I really believe he can destroy these strongholds? Because my experience is this. They seem to linger. And they don't seem gone. Because the same condemnation that I'm battling still shows up. God, what do I do? Oh, we look at God. We need to learn more about his power. We need to learn more about his greatness. We need to learn more about his exaltation and his righteousness and his authority. We need to learn God. So we don't live under the shackles. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see where Paul puts that emphasis? We destroy arguments, not political arguments, not expedience arguments, not practical arguments, and every lofty opinion raised against who? God. So really, what we have to learn to do is hear what shame tells us and then say, God, does this fit with with who I know you to be? Does this fit with what you have said? I need to learn to take that and put it right on God. Hear God. You tell something to my shame because I've been trying to say it and it never goes away. God, you need to tell something to my shame. That's how we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Church, God wants to destroy strongholds in our lives. But that means that we have to be open and vulnerable with him. To say, God, what are you doing? I would like to invite the men of our church. We, and in this uh, series, we as your pastors, we want to help get through these things. We want to provide opportunity. We want to meet to figure out what, what, where is the help that's needed. Do you just need to invest in your relationship with the Lord and mindsets are changed? That's powerful, powerful when we read the scriptures and we find ourselves thinking differently about ourselves, God, and life. And there's victory and freedom that we experience. Sometimes it's that simple. A lot of times it's a little complicated or a lot complicated. And we need help discerning. What do I do? What do I, where do I go with this? And so men, I believe there are men in our church that have um, given up on, on pursuing an identity in Christ and living under that identity. And there are, there are habits or there are thoughts um, that things will never change. And maybe you find yourself in a pattern that you just can't get out of. It might, might be a sinful pattern. It might not even be a sinful pattern. It's just a thought pattern that's evidence of a stronghold. And I've asked our friend Carter Featherston to help us with this, to be able to... We're, we're, Carter uh, hosts Pure Heart Weekends, and we're going to do one. And, and it's my hope that all of the men of the church over the next several months would be able to go through one of these. 
to begin to experience. Maybe there's something lingering around and, and, and that, that thing that your wife keeps on reminding you of that you can't figure out where it's coming from. Rather than being dismissive, you say, all right, maybe this needs more investigation. And so we want to investigate, but we also want to experience the Spirit's ministry to us. Our first one is going to be next month, November 18th and 19th. It's going to be small, about six or eight guys at a time. But here's where I'm asking you. Is there something? Is there, is there an aspect of your life that's stuck? You're just not growing. That needs the help and the discernment and the camaraderie of the men of the church to surround you. Because uh, the, the way that this weekend will work is that these guys that come together are one saying, I need ministry, but this is awesome. We give ministry to one another. And we function as God wants us to function. Next week, I'm going to have available for you uh, a spiritual inventory for everybody. It's going to be on an old school piece of paper that will be able to write out and fill out And our hope is that you would then schedule an appointment with a pastor to be able to just walk through it. What are, what are, what seems to be going well? What goes, what's not going well? We want to do this because we want to, we want to be responsible shepherds of your soul. We're not, we're not looking to shepherd like control things. You need to do that. No, God is your God. I have enough trouble obeying what he's telling me to do to give other people (laughs) rules. This is about, we want to care for one another. We want to care for one another. We want to walk together because I believe the Lord is doing this with our church. He's preparing us for increase. He's preparing us because God wants to save more souls. And I'm asking every day, for him to send us those souls. But we have to be in a place that we can care for them. So we need to learn to care for one another and hold each other and be committed and feel that commitment to be able to bless others. I believe the Lord wants more souls for the kingdom. I want to stand first in line saying, God, use us. Use us, please. Use us. Because what we see in our city context is people who are running after idol, after idol, after idol, giving their time and their finances to things that will never bring joy and peace. May they look at us and see the presence of God. Amen? May they look and see us experiencing God's presence. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. For the ministry of your word, thank you that you you want more for us. May we want that the same way you do. And may we go to you to experience it. Please, Father. Bless us as we embark on a journey that may be uncomfortable and a little scary looking into our hearts. But God, we ask that your light would shine in our hearts and would illuminate things and that we would not be fearful of things coming to the light. We would understand that healing comes when the light is shown on those things. So Lord, give us discernment, give us faith, give us love, give us your presence in full measure. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, church, let's be, let's be reminded the mission that we have.
you know, going to make disciples is, is letting them know of the presence that we experience in him. Reminding what Jesus told us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. God bless you.